Good evening, everyone. We're broadcasting live July 8th. No, July 7th, 2016. 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's quote is about right view. In the Mahavedala Sutta, Mahakotita asks Sariputta, Katipalnao so parjaya samaditya upadaya. From which causes from what causes does right view arise? Right view. Right view is huge in Buddhism. It's really the it's a core concept, and rightly so. In a religious concept, there's really nothing so central as the views. Every, every religion has its own views. Sometimes within, a, well, most times within every religion, uh, different teachers in the same religion have their own views. In India, in the time of the Buddha, all the different religious teachers had different views. Views are very important. They inform our actions. It's a, it's, it's a core concept in Buddhism, the idea of view. From the point of view of meditation, it's it's called ditujukama, straightening your view. We have all sorts of crooked views, so it's about uh, eradicating them through simple observation of reality seeing that reality doesn't accord these views don't accord with reality and rejecting our, our own beliefs rejecting the beliefs that we hold the beliefs, the views, the opinions the value judgments all kinds of judgments and beliefs. It's a crucial, it's crucial because when we non-religious people tend to identify with their views as, as who they are. You know, put aside people who are devoutly religious, ordinary people have their own views and, and cling to them as uh, I believe this, I believe that. Without, without often stopping to ask whether I, do I have any reason to believe this or believe that? Is my belief superior to other beliefs? Is my belief 
uh, more in line with reality? Is my belief in line with reality? We don't we don't generally have a means of of uh, confirming our views, and so we cling to them. We simply hold them, these views and cling to them as as ours without ever having investigated thoroughly. So we have views of self, views of soul, we have to have views of the afterlife or non-afterlife. We have views of right and wrong. We have views about the future, views about the past. All sorts of views. And they tend to get us in trouble. If you have a belief in God, in a God who created the universe, created man in his image, and created women to be a, a, a companion to men, etc., etc., it starts to create a narrative that has definite consequences. We are God, so we are in control of the universe. We have free will, so we can do what we want. Or, or, or more commonly, thou shalt not do this or that. And so our, our freedom is circumscribed by must do this, must do that, can't do this, can't do that. And so we suffer and we cause suffering for others. And you think of the persecution of um, uh, heretics in any religious context. It shows the, the absurd length to which people will go. There's this group of Islamic, and people who call themselves Islamic, uh, devotees, even today, going around I don't know what they're doing, trying to convert the rest of the world to believe in their particular bland, brand of repressive, extreme, literalist Islam. So they're killing all the other Muslims and, of course, killing all the non-Muslims. doing incredibly ridiculous things. We had the Christians doing this in the past. even had the Jews doing it, the Jews who have always been persecuted. They have a history of persecuting, persecuting uh, those who believe in other gods, those who refuse to believe in their god. Anyway, these views are, are putting aside religious people, these views are are very much a part of what we have to deconstruct. We come into the meditation with certain views. And the meditation is disturbing in that it challenges these views. Views of right and wrong and good and bad. In meditation in Buddhism, the idea is there's nothing worth clinging to. 
a lot of our views are about what is worth clinging to. This is worth clinging to, that is worth clinging to. I believe this is important, that is important, family is important, money is important, I don't know. Uh, health, physical health is important, it challenges all these things. Enjoying life is important, sensual desire is important, music is important, etc., etc., abuse. So it's important, it's not that we reject or we denounce or we suppress our views. What's important is that we learn to cultivate right view, which, is, which means view that's in line with reality. This means we study reality and we put aside any and all views that we might have in favor of what we can actually uh, observe as being true. So the quote today talks about, it's the question is what what is it, how, how do you cultivate right view? What is it that gives rise to it? So he says two things, parato goso, yoni soja manasikaro, parato of another gosa uh, voice, the, the voice of another. I think there's something in the commentary about people who think this means, parato uh, means from another world, so a, a spirit talking to you. Something like that. There's some understanding. That's not what it means. It just means another person talking. So when you hear the Buddha, when you hear the Buddha talking, when you hear the Buddha explaining things, someone who understands, you find someone who has done the work, and then you can cultivate right view from hearsay. That goes with wrong view as well, of course. We cultivate our views based on what other people tell us, what our parents believe, what the people we respect believe. But the other is yoni so manasikaro. This is how you really cultivate right view, true to truly take it on as a view, as a, well, to have it be an unshakable view. It's no longer belief. It's based on view, based on seeing. Yoni so manastikara means right attention or wise attention. Wise attention. Wise attention describes the practice of insight meditation. When you walk and you, you, you have to ask yourself, what is the best way to pay attention to this walking? And so our uh, approach is to try and understand this movement of the foot for what it is as, as clearly and as simply as possible. When you hear a sound, to try and understand that as a sound as clearly as possible and get your mind in a state to experience it as clearly as possible clearly and as simply, without any judgment or prejudice. And so that's how, that, that's how we come to use this quality of mindfulness, sati, reminding yourself. We place our mind in such a way that we can understand the core, the root. Yoni, yoni so, it's translated usually as wisely, and that's generally what the word means, but 
literally it means to the womb to the to the origin so when you understand something to the origin it means you understand the very essence of it without any extrapolation so when you remind yourself stepping right stepping left um, and that's actually a little bit abstract but when you lift your foot and you say lifting when you place and say placing when you hear something you say hearing when you feel pain and you say pain This is how you cultivate right view. As you start to see things as they are, you give up all of what you think they are or uh, how you conceive things to be in favor of just what they are. And you get really, really familiar with, uh, with, with the ordinary, simple nature of things. That's simply what we do in meditation. And then he says, what are the five, five with, supported by what five factors does right view lead to uh, freedom, jeto uh, vimutti and uh, does does it have as its fruit so right view is a cause basically is a cause for um, liberation of mind and liberation of wisdom these are two technical terms sometimes when you read the buddha's teaching you have to know which terms are being discussed and it's difficult with the english translation because different translators use different terms but they're referring to two very specific uh, technical terms. Jeto Vimutti means uh, liberation through samatha meditation. So when your mind becomes tranquil, when you calm your mind down, it becomes freed from defilement. It's not permanent, but it's a, it's a basis for true understanding. And Banya Vimutti means through wisdom, through insight. Once you see things as they are, then you, you let go of them. You have no defilements, no attachments in the mind through wisdom. It's through samatha and vipassana practice. So how does it lead to these, to true freedom, basically? Freedom through uh, mental power and freedom through the power of wisdom. Basically, what do we need in order to really have mature and well-established right view so the buddha gives five uh sorry buddha gives five but he's repeating what the buddha has said elsewhere five factors sila sutta sagacha samatha vipassana and i've given this as a talk before ajahn tong uh, i would often give this talk because he talks about right view often he talks about these five factors. Sila means you need morality. You need ethical conduct. Without ethics, it's very hard to see things clearly. If your mind is caught up in killing and stealing and cheating and lying. Not easy to see clearly. You have to give these things up. Drugs and alcohol, that kind of thing. Even entertainment is dangerous. Eating too much sleeping too much, that kind of thing. 
sutta. Sutta means listening. We've gone over this. Sutta and sagacha. Sagacha means uh, discussing, asking questions. So that's what we're going to do after this. Right now you're doing sutta, everyone's listening. Sagacha is when, well, here in the meditation center, the meditators get uh, a period of time every day to talk with the teacher if they have any questions. And the teacher will ask them questions. So it's, a, it's an important part of the practice. You can't subsist simply by listening to the Dhamma. You need also to get feedback and to ask questions yourself to get confirmation reassurance that kind of thing and to get adjustment samatha and vipassana so samatha is the tranquility of mind you can talk if you're talking about our meditation technique and our tradition samatha is when your mind becomes fixed and focused on the objects your mind becomes tranquil in the sense that it's no longer lost it's no longer uh, uh, floating about flitting about and vipassana means when you see you see the rising the falling you see pain as pain and you start to see things just as they are and you start to give up your attachments to them because you see that they're not worth clinging to that there's nothing really worth clinging to this is part of a longer sutta where he talks about many many he's asked many questions and he sariputta lists many different teachings of the buddha giving answers that were collected together, the Mahavidala Sutta. So, more importantly, let's get on if we have, see if we have questions from our audience. Is the I a concept of, or created by the mind towards helping it stay attached? I would say the I is a uh, an ex advanced sort of attachment, something that comes over time from constant and repeated and habitual attachment. As with all concepts, it comes about uh, through habit. When you see the same thing, when you experience the same thing repeatedly, there comes to be the idea of the, of the concept. Like uh, if you see this, see something like this again and again, eventually you get the concept of it. And then it's easy to put a name to it. This is a pen. But only because I've seen this type of thing and I've experienced and, and used it to write with and that kind of thing. So I have a strong concept. So I is like that. I is based on habit. Based on seeing the same sort of thing again. And it, where it gets really bad is um, when it's involved with, with clinging. So when clinging... Uh, when you see, you know, the body, you see it again and you feel it again and again. And so you start to cling to it and you start to cultivate this concept of, hey, this is me, this is mine, this is I. Because then, it, then there's a problem. There's, when it's caught up with attachment, then if anyone, hurt, if anyone threatens this body, you become angered and upset. Why? Because it's me, it's mine, it's I. But it's all based on the attachment. I wouldn't say it's it was created to help. I don't think the mind is that clever. I mean, maybe there's some aspect, but that, I think that's overanalyzing things. It's just sort of something the mind comes up with quite simply as a result of clinging. 
just as there is contact between awareness and bodily senses. So the same contact that occurs when the mind is distracted by one thought train and another thought train. I think I understand body-mind contact and mind-body contact. The possibility of mind-mind contact seems like experience. Yeah, the mind is contacted by thought. The thoughts contact the mind. It's it's just contact doesn't exist. It's just a, a, a part of reality. It's a fact that the mind and the, the mind and the object contact, and the, the object can be mental. There is there is some theoretical contact. It's not a thing that exists. It's just a description of what happens. Should one have only views that one has realized ba realized basis insight? Realized basis insight. So that someone new to insight meditation has very few views. Well, no, the thing is, when you come into insight meditation, you have lots of views, and the idea is to deconstruct them. Someone experienced in insight will have very few views, I would say. I mean, there are lots of views that are harmless, as long as you understand the uh, conditional nature of them. Like, I have the view that it's wrong to drive on the left side of the, of the, the road, but it's an incredibly conditional view. I don't have a sense that if I see people in Britain driving on the left side of the, view, the road, I think they're wrong. You know, they should be driving all on the right side. And just know that here, if you do it, it's wrong. It's wrong because you're going to crash into somebody because we've agreed to stay on the right. Um, so there's lots of, there's lots of, I don't even know if that could qualify as a view, but there are, there are understandings that we have that are conditional. And there are like, it's good to take care of your parents is a, is a good view, it's right view. But it's not deep spiritual, well, it's not the deepest ultimate reality spiritual truth, because in ultimate reality our parents don't exist, right? You say, I should take care of my parents. Well, doesn't that have to do with self, you know? Isn't that dealing with, with beings which don't exist? But you can't live like that. We have to live with concepts, especially when we're surrounded by people who live and understand and take these things seriously in order to approach them and, and engage with them you have to understand them in their terms and so we have to accept things like looking after our parents is, is a very important thing um, doing good deeds helping others this kind of thing being kind being loving Is the cultivation of equanimity only truly possible at very high levels of progress? Well, there, there's different there's different types of equanimity. Like an ox has equanimity. Uh, a cow has equanimity. But instead of stupidity, animals are pretty equanimous. Uh, you, of course, animals can get angry, but they don't get 
terribly angry. Have you ever seen monkeys in the forest? Well, they can get really angry. But for the most part, they just sit there and they're kind of like, I look at you like, so what? You go towards them, well, they move away, but they don't really ever get upset. They just sit there and start, you know, scratch themselves and, and eat their food. And uh, this is the equanimity of, equanimity of stupidity. Just don't don't have the brain power to get upset. They do get upset, but for the most part, they're they're just not. They just don't work that way. They're dull. It's the equanimity of stupidity. There's the equanimity of, of tranquility, where you focus the mind on a single object to such extent that you become perfectly calm. I mean, even in vipassana, this comes about. There are states of calm. But the equanimity of insight is, yes, is you have to get to a fairly high stage. But, you know, through a meditation course, someone can come to this stage. But if you really get to this stage, this is where the mind is ready to enter into Nibbana. It's not through suppression. You see everything that you saw in the beginning of the course. You, you, you let everything come that came in the beginning of the course but all of your reactions are gone when you experience anything and it isn't it isn't conscious you haven't you haven't forced your mind you haven't reprogrammed your mind in any way all you've done is um, seen things so clearly that you have no doubt that any of these things might be worth clinging to there's no there's not even a small well, there's less and less of an idea that there might be any reason to cling to anything. And so you stop clinging, you're able to see things arise and cease. And that's called sankarupik, it's equanimity towards a formation. Isn't contact a sabbajita sadharana jetasika? In other words, a jetasika present in all thought. Yes, but that's what does that mean? It's, does it mean that it's a thing? It's a problem. You study Abhidhamma and you start to think these things exist as things. You start to think in terms of entities, especially when you put these little balls up. Have you ever seen the charts? They have the circles. So you got 121 minds and each one's represented by a circle. And so you start to think, wow, there are 121 minds up there. Which is ridiculous. It's like there are eight lobajitas. There are not. There's only one mind, but the mind can have different factors. It can have different qualities to it. But all minds arise through contact, contact with an object. So it's called a jitasika, but it's not a thing. It doesn't exist. That's the problem with the Abhidhamma. It's you start to understand. It can actually be misleading. That's not the problem with the Abhidhamma. It's the problem you have to be careful of when you study it. It's uh, easy to cultivate systems that make you think that a jeta-sikha is a thing. It's not. It's a, it's a quality of the mind. But all minds have the quality of contacting an object. It can't. A mind can't arise without contact with an object. But the contact doesn't exist. It's like... If these two things come in contact, would you say the contact exists as an entity? No. Contact arises 
because these, you know, these two things touch. When they touch, there's contact. The contact is a quality, it's not a thing. It's a description of what's the situation, the state. So sabbajita, all minds, sadharana, common jetasika, quality of mind. It's a You're doubting me, you're always doubting me. Of course, they're real. Just as I said, is it, are these really contacting each other? So when these touch, does contact arise somewhere? Do you see contact? Can you, you know, did you say, did, it, did you have to inject some contact into there for them to contact? No. But do they really contact? Yes. If they really contact, then is contact a reality? Yes, contact is a reality. But none of those things are entities. I love this is dealing with 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 people who are knowledgeable about Buddhism. Because we can I can sound all heretic to them. It sounds somehow I mean it's easy to get I don't know, I mean maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. It's the problem with with system with institutional uh, study becomes hypnotic, and you start to think think in terms. You, know, you build up constructs more than they are. It, it complicates things. No, passe isn't a thing. Passe is a description of what happens. Like the scientists, they're trying to find the gravitron. They're trying to find the particle that causes uh, that causes bodies to be pulled together. And they can't explain gravity. I mean, it's it's really a mystery, right? Why do things? And Buddhism doesn't even have an answer. I think Einstein came close when he said, or he helped us understand when he said, it's just the warping of space time. Gravity is the warping of space-time. Really strange. I don't really understand it. But they're trying to find a thing that creates gravity. It sounds a little absurd. I don't know if they are. I mean, I guess my limited understanding is that's what scientists are trying to do. It's the search for the, the particle, the Higgs boson, the search for the thing, the entity. What is it, the essence? And they go deeper and deeper and it's like a fractal. The deeper you go, the more complex it becomes. I have this theory that um, the universe is like a balloon. And so as you push further out and investigate further, all you do is stretch reality. Like a fractal, I guess. But like a balloon, you're blowing up the balloon with your, with your investigation. And so it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you're, the force of your investigation uh, is is limited. It's limited by the, the depth of your ability to investigate, not by reality. You could go on forever if you had enough force of investigation. Like we're, we have these bigger and bigger telescopes, and I think we're just going to see more and more. And it'd be funny if we just 
you know, kept saying, oh, the universe is bigger than we thought. Oh, it turns out the universe is bigger. But it's because of our investigation. I think that would be quite interesting if that were true. It might very well be true. That our very investigation of the stars is creating them. Doesn't matter either way, but... I hate to be that guy, but nothing ever truly touches on a microscopic level from what I've heard. Yeah, well, that's because science doesn't, that's because things don't really exist on a microscopic level. But in, 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 uh, that's what's different about ultimate reality, experiential reality, is that things do contact. The mind does contact an object, really, it has to. I mean, but it's just a description of what happens. I got to ask Bhante, because the same issue drove me away from Christianity. Why do Buddhists talk about hell? Personally, I don't believe in such a place that we go to, because some of us already live in it. There you go. This is a perfect example of what we're talking about tonight. You have this belief, which is meaningless. How, how, what, what, what meaning is there in the fact that you have that belief? Sorry to, to attack you, but I'm going to take you as an example. Your view is meaningless. I don't believe in such a place. So what? What does that say? That says nothing to me. This is, this is the problem. I say there is a hell. You say there is no hell. How do, we, how do we go about solving that problem? We, we have to discard both of those. Neither of those works. I believe there's a hell. Meaningless. I believe there's no hell. Also a meaningless statement. Beliefs are, are, are problematic. And we don't see the problem in them. So we cling to our beliefs. We think that that means something. I believe there's no hell. That means something. It means nothing. We get too caught up in our beliefs, and, and so that's um, it, part of it is our need to live in a multicultural, multi-religious world where everyone has different beliefs. If we were constantly challenging each other's beliefs, we wouldn't get anything done. How would we work with each other? We go to work in the morning with the guy next to us from a different religion, and We find out he believes in 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 this. Well, we'd have to challenge him on it. No? So instead, we say, "Yes, yes, you believe that. I believe this." And so it becomes a thing. I, I, these are my beliefs. Buddhism is a very complex system, and it, it has a very complex or very. Uh, it's in, it comes from an advanced, an advanced civilization. Really beyond beyond anything that I can think of. I mean, India was just, at the time of the Buddha, it was a pretty remarkable place, the depth of spirituality. If you look at, um, if you look at like Christianity and the Judeo-Christian religions, you can't really compare them to the Indic religions. They're, they're simple, they're simplistic. They really don't have the depth I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. But, you know, if those people heard it, they would reject that outright. But they don't. They're simplistic. 
you know, believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. Believe in Muhammad, you go to... I mean, what kind of... What's the word? Um, provincial, I think is the word. Provincial beliefs. It's very quaint beliefs. When you compare it to the complex beliefs of the Hindus and Krishna, the ideas of Krishna and in the Bhagavad Gita and that kind of thing. Even things like Taoism, you know, these very profound uh, spiritual insights. Not to say that not to say that there aren't Europeans and Westerners who haven't been spiritual, of course. But but in general, so what I'm getting at is the the concept of hell doesn't just come out of nowhere like it does in in Christianity and the idea of you know, kind of scaring you. But even from Christianity, it probably comes from the Romans. You know, it was the, the Greeks. It was an old belief that probably came from originally from. Oh heck, I don't know what is the history of hell, but um, probably the history of hell is people remembering it. But anyway, it, so it comes with this worldview that has a sense of continuation because it's based on an experiential outlook our experience is the basis for reality if you can get that through your mind if you can make that paradigm shift which comes about through meditation then the idea of re rebirth is not far-fetched it's it's much more reasonable than the alternative because you've seen how the mind perpetuates experience how the mind continually uh, continues or creates a continuation of experience and so the idea that at death that ceases is only based on belief it's only based on a worldview of this body you know this entity existing and this entity being the source of I the source of who I am and and seeing others and learning about others that when this body dies they die they're gone or they go to heaven, depending on your worldview. Um, but from a point of view of meditation, if you really internalize this paradigm of, of experiential reality, it, it's much less reasonable to believe that at death there's nothing. Because there's so much. At death there's still so much power, so much craving, so much attachment. Of course, if you have none of that, then yes, there's nothing. There's no continuation. So hell is just a continuation that is hellish. And do people live it here? It's an interesting argument, but no, they don't really live it here. I mean, just because people can, can live in horrible, horrible states as human beings doesn't mean that there aren't other uh, realms or, or, or basis of, ex of experience, like being born as an animal is one that we can see. There are animals that experience far worse torture than, than humans. Remember uh, watching a farmer, I was tell this story when, we were, when I was making hay with, when I was growing up, we would carry the hay bales and the farmer is driving the tractor and suddenly veers to one side and then veers to the other and we're all in the back of the wagon 
and he gets off and he goes and he starts kicking at something in the field. It turns out it was a groundhog and he kicks it and kicks it and flies through the air and then he goes and kicks it again with his boots and, and he picks it up and you can see it bleeding and, and wheezing and like dying and he goes and puts it on the rock pile and we watch it and he says, the vultures will get it. That's what animals have to contend with. Guy didn't like groundhogs. But there's worse than that. I mean, don't believe in hell, it doesn't bother me, but there is a claim that there are places that are worse, and it makes sense because there are people who are worse, there are beings who are worse. So the idea that you could get so bad that you have this intense, incredible, unbelievable amount of suffering makes sense. It's not permanent, it's not it's not fate, it's not like like the Christian hell where you're there for eternity, which is pretty silly. But yeah, don't don't rely on your views. If you don't have any reason to believe in hell, don't believe in hell, that's fine. But if you hear wise people, people who you believe are wise, and that's up to you, telling you that there is a hell, well, you might want to consider it. Doesn't mean you have to believe it, but you might say, hmm, well, wise people are saying there might be a hell, or there is a hell, or whatever. On the other hand, if, if crazy people start saying it, like, well, it's neither here nor there. There are lots of views, as many views as there are people, for sure. More. Everything has some form of consciousness. I, I don't want to get into it. I certainly don't believe that. Absolutely not. Do you learn more by studying the teaching of the Buddha or by watching an enlightened being live? Probably more by studying the teachings of the Buddha. I know it's not probably the best answer, but you learn important things by watching and more important than watching, I think watching is maybe limited by by associating and by by being molded and guided by you gain a lot. So maybe that's it's not that you learn more, but you learn perhaps more important things. It's more important to associate than to simply study. All other things being equal, studying is probably inferior. You learn more, though, I think. I still think there's there's an importance to it. You can't compare these two and say, I'll do one or the other. The association makes it real and really grounds you and sets you on the right path. But the study uh, helps you traverse the path. If you don't actually study, because unless the person you're following is the Buddha, yeah, their, their, their guidance is going to be limited. And so reading the Buddha's teachings gives you a broader picture. It's also very important. It's a good question. Isn't belief in Buddhism similar to just blindly following Christianity and Jesus, where your Jesus is Buddha? Uh, yeah. I mean, belief is actually a good thing. Belief is a positive mind state. 
positive because it it gives you power. Christians are, can be very powerful in their belief, and that's a good thing, technically a good thing. The, the, the belief, the faith itself is good. The thing that you have faith in is where the problem arises. If, if you have faith in something wrong, the power of that mind leads you to hell, leads you to a bad place, leads you to suffering. But the faith itself is good. So when you have faith in Buddhism, it actually is a good thing. You know, It's limited, but it's good because the power of that is going to lead you in the right direction. It's going to lead you to practice the teachings. It's going to give you confidence that you need to practice the teachings. So it's limited. It's not enough, but it should be considered to be a good thing. But, but be, to be clear, it's not belief that we're looking for. Belief, we would say, is good, but it's it's not nearly enough. And it's to be replaced eventually through or by understanding. If you don't want to believe anything in Buddhism, that's fine. It gets a little bit difficult when you're constantly questioning things rather than having an open mind and, and allowing you know, at least... Um, at least giving giving the benefit of the doubt enough to try something. But um, if you just outright believe something, you see, if you outright believe something and that thing happens to be true, it's good. It's good luck for you. You've 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 picked the right thing to believe in. So that's considered to be a good thing. But but yes, b belief is dangerous. That's why many people become atheists because if you believe the wrong thing, bad luck for you. But, but as I say, if you believe in your teacher, if you have faith, if, if it turns out your teacher is teaching good things, it's good. And probably the best way to approach meditation in the beginning is a combination of belief and, and, uh, and wisdom. So you, you examine skeptically. Uh, but once you come to see, okay, this is a good teaching and a good teacher, you allow yourself to believe in it. That's important because the belief will give you the power to succeed. If you're constantly doubting it, it's easy to doubt something that's right. It's easy to have doubt about the right thing. Doubt isn't a sign that something is wrong. is isn't always. It can be. It often is. But it can, it can also just be a sign of a, a, a habit of doubting things. We can doubt what is right. This is, you also have to understand. And, and the point being that doubt prevents you from progressing. So I think skeptics have to, have to examine that and be careful. Because if you're constantly skeptical, you can actually come to doubt the truth. But yes, doubt is, uh, belief can be dangerous. It's something you have to be careful with. Sometimes I wonder if I'm doing all I can to make good progress on the path. For instance, I'm not a monk, nor do I have formal teacher. As a layperson, should I have a teacher to expedite my progress? Yes, having a teacher would be great. Having a teacher is important. It helps not only expedite, but, but realign your practice with what's right. How can one cultivate more faith? 
Well, the best way I like, I think right away, the best way is to focus on your doubt and take that as your religion. Your religion would be the eradication of your doubt. And so this, in our tradition, we say doubting, doubting. And once you have no more doubt, you feel much better. You feel much more at peace. And in fact, that's one of the qualities of a sotapanna. Sotapanna has no more doubt. They've completely eradicated it. If you follow our teaching, if you follow this tradition, that's what you come to. You don't come to any sort of belief. You just give up any doubt. You don't have any reason to doubt. Doubt is doubt. That's not worth doubting. Okay, there's one thing. Pain is pain. Can I really doubt that? No, there's nothing to doubt. That's how we cultivate faith. And you become more confident because you start to see it's so simple. There's nothing to believe. So we have such great confidence in this truth. We think it, we, we miss this, you see. Even when we come to meditation, we think there must be something deeper. Where is this wisdom, this insight they're talking about? You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is knowing this is rising and knowing this is falling. When you know rising, that's wisdom. When you, the, the thing is, we, we can't, we, we don't stop there. We extrapolate. It's good, it's bad, it's me, it's mine, and so on. Once you can see, no, this is really just rising, that's really all it is. Even the three characteristics, where's impermanence, where's suffering, where's non-self? I can't see them, everything's, you know, it's, it's too hard, you know, everything's chaotic and so on. We see the three characteristics and we think they're getting in the way of us seeing the three characteristics, that kind of thing. So cultivate faith by, in our tradition, there's many ways of cultivating religious faith, but true faith should be cultivated through simplicity, through giving up doubt, and through cultivating practice that has no relationship to things that are worth doubting. Going back to pure view or right view, I have difficulty keeping my practice. Sometimes I spend my commute loving compassion and just smiling Sometimes I get down because I feel like I'm faking it till I make it. Yes, well, that's the problem with the Brahma Viharas. And even if you get to the jhanas, you're still just kind of faking it. You know, it's still just superficial. It doesn't actually make you a pure individual. Whereas if you practice insight, then the love that you project is very real. Compassion that you project is pure. You know, practice insight, focus on insight. I gained my faith, lost my doubt in Buddhism by trying to practice and questioning it. Didn't the Buddha suggest a form of critical thinking or testing it out mentality? Sure, but there's a difference, you know, to some extent. There's, a, and I think I've gone over this, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but belief is useful, but um, it should be based on reason, it should be based on on evidence. You know, you, if you see, see people practicing and you have, and you hear about what they're practicing and you see that they're getting good results and you think it through and say, well, that makes sense, you should, you should be willing to believe to some extent, to some extent. You know, it's not outright 100% belief, but you have to have a confidence. Because as I said, it, it, 
I see too many meditators who are, are plagued by doubt. So, and it goes like this. One day they'll have a great meditation, and they'll come and they'll say, I got it, you know, I, I, I really saw it. I see impermanence, I see stuff. I have no doubt about this. Then the next day or the day after, or a week or a month or a year later, they've left. They've maybe even left Buddhism entirely because they'll allow their doubt to, to take charge. When they'd seen it, they'd seen the truth. You know, so often it's the next day or the day after, and they're like, yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. or you know, They've lost all their confidence. It's possible to question the truth. It's possible to question even after you've seen the truth. Right? This is because the mind is tricky. Our mind is not a reliable instrument. You can't go with your feeling. You have to be very careful. This is why. So it doesn't mean you should ever believe things blindly, but you should also not doubt things blindly. Yeah. You should be careful not to just doubt that, that your doubt is not blinding you, because it will. Your doubt will get in the way. Doubt will get in the way. You have to give up doubt completely. Give up doubt. And you can only really say that in a practice that is simply about giving up doubt. You know, because if I say, Jesus is the path to salvation, give up all your doubt. You know, it doesn't really work because you're asking me to believe something. But if I say just give up doubt, and believe me, that's a good thing. You know, it's not, it, it actually works because it's true. Once you give up doubt, you'll feel better. But then I'm not adding anything. There's nothing... You can't look and say, you know, that's dangerous because you're just, then I'm just going to believe this blindly. In Buddhism, it's like, well, believe what blindly? You're going to believe blindly that having no doubt is happiness, you know, basically. I mean, doubt is, doubt is important because faith is dangerous. Skepticism is important. And there's a difference between, but it's not even so much skepticism. We also have to be careful that we don't confuse the two. We think when we doubt things, we're being skeptical. Well, you're not really. Good skepticism is not really doubt. Good skepticism is seeing that there's not enough evidence for a claim that's being made. That's it. There's no doubt about it. You're, you're actually quite confident. You're confident that this person is making a claim that is not backed by evidence. It's not backed by logic or reason or evidence. You know, there's no reason to believe this. That's what good skepticism does. Now, bad skepticism is doubt. It's where you're not sure. And you're wavering in the mind. Is disliking related to the characteristic of suffering in meditation. Yes, um, well, not the characteristic of suffering, not exactly. Doubt is, uh, I'm sorry, disliking, but but a, a suffering mind, a state of actual experience of suffering, of mental suffering is always disliking. Only disliking is is mental suffering. So if you had no disliking, there would be no mental suffering. They're, they're, they're synonymous. And this is when you get into Abhidhamma, this is where you break it apart. They go together, always. Uh, aversion and, and mental suffering are the same thing. 
but not physical suffering. You can have physical suffering and not have mental suffering, so not have disliking. But the characteristic of um, the characteristic of suffering is a bit different. Characteristic means that it is has the potential to cause you suffering, or it's unable to satisfy, or it's uh, not doesn't go according to one's desires. That kind of thing. And basically, it's it's a cause for suffering. It's something that cannot bring you happiness. Why? Because it's impermanent. We're talking about experiences. No, no real thing in the universe can 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 bring you satisfaction. Because what is real is momentary. It arises and ceases. All those things that we think bring us happiness, like this pen, they're not even real. They don't really exist. So this pen doesn't have the characteristic of impermanence. It's funny. We think we always when we talk about Buddhism, we think, well, yeah, this pen is going to, you know. It's going to break down so it's impermanent and it's you know, not going to satisfy me. That's not what the Buddha, that's not real. I mean, yes, in a, it's, it's nice to talk about it's my car, my body, it's all going to break down. It's not, but that's not real. This pen doesn't even exist. This pen isn't what the Buddha talked about as being the truth. This pen isn't dukkha. It doesn't have the characteristic of dukkha. It actually doesn't. Concepts don't have the characteristics of impermanent suffering and non-self. Non-self may be. But, you know, it's a, just a technical thing. But they're not impermanent. See, it's still a pen. It's permanent. It's permanently a pen. It's stable as a pen. This is why you could meditate on it. You can cultivate tranquility by saying pen, pen, pen. It has to be stable for you to do that. It's still a pen. And therefore, sukha. It's not dukkha. But the reality, the reality is the experience. You're experiencing this pen, can you stop me from waving it? You know, can you experience it the way you want it? Can you bring the experience back when I take it away? It's not under our control. Oh no, you have to experience the pen again. Why? Because it's impermanent, unsatisfying, and uncontrollable. I'm making you experience the pen. So you close your eyes. Okay, I'm not going to experience it. And then it comes up in the mind. You didn't want it to come up, but then it comes up in your mind. Impermanent, unstable, unpredictable. That's the characteristic of impermanent suffering and so. All right. Enough for tonight. Too many questions. That's great. Lots of lots of interest. So keep practicing everyone. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.